Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelt. I am the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Today is Sunday, December 4. Thank you for joining me today. We are going to be doing our month in review. Thank you to everyone who has sent me emails and messages going, how come there wasn't a month in review last week? We didn't do it because in the United States, it was the Thanksgiving weekend holiday and a lot of people don't listen to podcasts during that time. So we didn't want this to get lost in the holiday cycle. And that is why we are doing this in the first week of December. If this is the first time you're listening to a month in review, welcome. What we do is we look at our assessment from November 1st, what we believe the goals for each belligerent were on different axes across Ukraine, and give them a grade. How did they perform in achieving those goals? The other thing that we take a look at is what did we predict was going to happen and what did we get right and what did we get wrong? Because the truth matters and a core part of truth is accountability. The first place that we start is the Kherson counteroffensive in Mykolaiv. The Russian objectives that we have for November 1st were executed controlled withdrawal of collaborators, government officials, military leaders, and experienced troops, while rotating Mobix to the front, hold existing defensive lines, protect Novokavkova ground lines of communication, G-lock supply lines, and restrict insurgent activity. For Ukraine, we had their objective of liberating the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River, push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket systems, MLRS, attacks on Mykolaiv. How did Russia do? Russia gets a C, and you might be surprised by that, but I'm going to explain why I'm giving them a C. What were their goals? Execute a controlled withdrawal of collaborators, government officials, military leaders, and experienced troops. They did an excellent job at this. When Russia withdrew from Kherson between November 8th and November 10th, they moved up to 20,000 troops in less than 48 hours. And they did not appear to suffer heavy losses while they did this. They staged an outstanding retreat. We could jokingly say that Russia has had a lot of experience in doing large-scale retreats, particularly since September, but you have to give credit where credit is due, and Russia did a tremendous job in withdrawing from the West Bank of the Dnipro. They did a very good job of protecting their experienced troops, and moving Mobix up. Yes, many of these experienced VDV and naval infantry units withdrew in a state of combat ineffectiveness, but they weren't withdrawn in a state of combat destroyed. And this, again, goes into why they get the sea. 
hold existing defensive lines. Obviously, they weren't able to do that. They completed their withdrawal west of the Dnipro on November 10th. Uh, protect the Nova Kafkova ground line of communication. Obviously, at the end, they didn't accomplish this either. Restrict insurgent activity. Again, in the end, they didn't accomplish this. In a way, it's a backhanded compliment in giving Russia a, a C, and I might even go as far as a C plus, because most of that grade is, well, you did a really effective retreat. What about Ukraine? Ukraine gets an A. Their goals were liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River. Mission accomplished. That's done. It was completed on November 10th. Second goal, push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket systems MLRS attacks on Mykolaiv. There hasn't been an MLRS attack since the withdrawal on the city. And the number of missile attacks, whether those are S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack or uh, Shahid-136 drones or cruise missiles like Caliber, KH-101, KH-59, all of those attacks are way down on Mykolaiv in particular. Part of that success is coming from the quality of the air defense forces of Ukraine that are in that southern region. They do an excellent job. What did we get wrong? We expected the withdrawal from the west side of the Dnipro to take longer than what it did. We expected this would be a two to seven week process once it became obvious that they were withdrawing. And we expected that Russia would do a fighting withdrawal. They would continue to engage in active combat and would eventually funnel through Nova Kafkova because that was the singular ground line of communication that they had left to cross over the Dnipro. And that didn't happen. It took all of 48 to 72 hours, uh, and they left with a whimper, not really with a fighting withdrawal. Uh, So we didn't get the timeline right. However, one thing we did get right is that Russia would withdraw. There were a number of analysts saying there's no sign that they're withdrawing. They're adding troops. They're not removing troops. Uh, And if you were readers of our situation reports, um, we were at one point pretty close to a lone voice in the wilderness uh, going, no, they're engaged in preparing for a withdrawal and they are leaving. For December, we have changed up the axes. So we no longer have uh, Mykolaiv and Kherson as an axis. There are only three settlements of Mykolaiv that are still occupied by Russia. They're all on the Kinburn spit. And there really is no fighting that is going on in that oblast anymore. We've put Zafrajaya and Kherson together now as an axis. For December, the Russian objectives prevent Ukrainian offensive into Kherson and Zafrajaya, integrate captured territory into the Russian Federation, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and the Ukrainian objective, liberate Russian-occupied areas, prevent further Russian advances, particularly into uh, Zafrajaya, and exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and finally, protect civilians. All right, the next axis that we were following was Dnipropetrovsk and Zafrajaya. 
The Russian objectives, integrate the Oblast into the Russian Federation, that's Zafrajaya, capture the rest of the Oblast, break civilian will with continued terror attacks and the destruction of electrical, natural gas, and water infrastructure, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zafrajaya nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective, prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and protect civilians. Russia gets a C minus. Now, why is that? Integrate the Oblast into the Russian Federation. That again is uh, Zafrajaya. Uh, they haven't made any progress in doing that. Capture the rest of Oblast. They haven't advanced an inch anywhere on that line. For the most part, through the month of November, uh, it was artillery exchanges. And they, for the most part, were light compared to other parts of Ukraine. Break civilian will with continued terror attacks and the destruction of electrical, natural gas, and water infrastructure. This isn't working, and it's just making the world angrier at Russia. Why isn't it working? If we look at other parts of Ukraine, so if we look at, say, people that are living in Chernihiv, People that lived there, or recently liberated areas of Kharkiv, people that lived in these regions already went months without electricity, and in some cases went months without electricity during March when it was unseasonably cold uh, in Ukraine. So for a significant amount of the population, they've been there, done that, have the t-shirt, and I'm over it. Yes, it is very hard to live without electricity and without heat. The Ukrainian people are displaying this British keep calm and carry on World War II resolve against these attacks. Of course there is frustration. Who wouldn't be frustrated? The lights are out. You don't have heat. You can't flush your toilet. And you can't get any information because you can't get a cell signal. Anybody who has lived through a natural disaster and has experienced this for the short term knows this is frustrating, but it is not breaking the will of the people. The situation at ZNPP is complicated. And we have to remember, we're only talking about through November 30th, because there is a lot of talk right now that Russia is on the brink of withdrawing from the plant, that there is a deal in the works between Kyiv and Moscow being brokered by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, But we don't have the details on that. And These conversations didn't start happening until December 1. So we have to draw the line and take that off of the table. The last time the plant was shelled was November 20th. Russia says Ukraine did it. Ukraine says Russia did it. There was an interesting study that was done by a group of analysts uh, who looked at the shell impacts, which show you the direction they were fired in, uh, and concluded that these shells came from the direction of where Russian artillery was. And they also had a very interesting conclusion on this November 20th strike, which they believe they don't have solid proof. It's what they believe is that Russia actually wasn't targeting the plant, that these were shells that fell short or were targeted wrong in the first place that were meant for Nikopol across the river, and that they were firing over the plant 
And these 11, 12 shells landed short. It's an interesting theory. The world, for the most part, seems to be over it when it comes to CNPP and the threats of there's going to be a meltdown, there's going to be a huge accident. Uh, Certainly having observers from the International Atomic Energy Agency that have been there now for three months has helped stabilize the situation, has helped provide visibility. Moscow is dismissing them as having bias and not telling the whole story. The rest of the world is looking at it and going, they're just doing their job. Stop doing bad things. Um, And you don't have to say, why does the world keep accusing us of doing bad things? We don't understand. What about Ukraine? Prevent further Russian advances? They did a great job here. There, There were no Russian advances. Exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict and protect civilians. They've done a solid job in this area. There wasn't a lot of probing uh, for weaknesses along this front. Uh, In this region, Ukraine gets a B-plus to an A-minus. So how come they don't get an A? We have a point of contact in this region, and we've had a point of contact in this area going back to May. And there are things that we know that we don't share Uh, in our situation reports or in our podcast to respect operational security. We're not getting classified information or anything like that. We don't work with any government entities. And this gives us a little more insight that helps us form our assessment on what's happening. And based on that, there were some opportunities that were left on the table. And that's as much as I'm going to say. I had mentioned earlier that we restructured the Herson access uh, and no longer include Mykolaiv as part of that. Uh, so we've already covered the objectives for this region going into December. All right. Next up is southwestern Donetsk, the Russian objective integrate the Oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the Oblast, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective, lock Russian military assets in place, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, interdict supplies, and disrupt logistics. How did Russia do here? Russia gets a C-, and That might even be generous. Integrate the Oblast into the Russian Federation. Again, we have to draw the line here at November 30. So if we look through the month of November, uh, border security between the occupied territories in Russia was maintained. They weren't removed, as promised back in September. We had a different standard for mobilization in the DNR than the rest of the Russian Federation. When I say DNR, the next People's Republic. And this was, again, corrected, but corrected in December. Uh, One of the things that was going on is that students were still being mobilized, while by decree from the Kremlin, uh, students were no longer being mobilized in Russia. And if you've listened to our podcast, if you read our situation reports, we have mocked some of these Russian withdrawals where the talking points coming from the Kremlin or coming from occupation officials is, well, we're retreating or we are 
relocating. You're not relocating. You are filtering and engaged in genocide Ukrainians to Russia. But then when they say Russia, like they don't mean Donetsk or Zaporizhia or even Crimea. They mean Russia. And it's like, wait a minute, but you say that you annexed all this area. This is Russia. So which where, where is Russia now? We're confused. Is this 2014 Russia? Is this 2022 Russia? Is this 2010 Russia? What, which Russia are you talking about? Okay, I've beat that joke into the ground. They haven't done a great job of that integration. Uh, you could still use Ukrainian currency as an example. Capture the rest of the Oblast. They made in southwestern Donetsk just some very small incremental gains. So they haven't made any real progress here. Bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. Uh, if we look at cities like uh, Mariupol, uh, where the insurrection is just growing and growing and growing, they're doing a terrible job in this particular space. I do want to dive into a couple of areas where they have offensives going on. We are seeing the exact same scenario that happened in August playing out in Marenka. Uh, August 21, the DNR forces advancing into Marenka. There was a video that came out on August 21 uh, showing the use of thermite munitions. Uh, the uh, DNR, uh, Russian mill bloggers, and uh, the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense were already declaring that capture was imminent. What did we learn after all of this? Uh, they weren't as far in as they said that they were, and they couldn't get past the fortified areas of downtown. And in the end, when we start getting towards the end of September, they lost almost all of those gains. We were right back to... Uh, the Donetsk People's Republic First Army Corps has a toehold in the eastern part of Marenka, and that's it. We're playing the scenario out again. Uh, at the end of November, Marenka's ready to fall. We've already taken the center of the city and, again, have to draw the line at November 30. But even when we get to November 30, the tone in the Russian mill blogger space was already changing. It was reaching the... We can't advance past these very strong defensive positions. And what did they do? They dropped a bunch of thermite in the middle of the city, and it hasn't changed the situation. Russian forces made some incremental gains towards Avdivka. This is the Avdivka that is west of Donetsk, not the tiny little village that is south of Bakhmut. And we put Bakhmut in the northeast Donetsk axis. Most of those advances are through empty fields that have been shelled, bombed, and have had some degree of fighting, either intense or low-grade, since 2014. Uh, and nowhere near the line of advances that had been achieved, say, going into the summer of 2014. We're maintaining our assessment that the Donetsk People's Republic First Army Corps and the Kremlin are not dedicating enough resources for the capture of Marenka or Avdivka. And this grinding war of attrition is just going to continue in this area. And the Kremlin has not signaled that they are very supportive or very interested in the capture of Avdivka. They don't talk about it in their morning reports that the Russian Ministry of Defense releases. There's no mention 
of the fighting that goes on in this area. And they have pulled forces dedicated to the offensives to surround Afdifka and pulled them to other sectors twice. This is a lonely battle that the DNR is fighting. What about Ukraine? Lock Russian military assets in place. They've done a very good job at that. Uh, Russia has dedicated a lot of military resources. Uh, There was a ton of fighting where upwards of 2,000 Russian casualties were suffered uh, trying to capture this town of Pavlivka. You're probably going, wait a minute, Russia did capture it. Yeah, for the most part. The town is a no-man's land because of the artillery advantage Advantage not in number of pieces, but advantage in where Ukrainian artillery is firing from. Russia really can't advance. And Ukrainian forces, we believe, still have a small toehold in the northwestern corner of that town. Defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses. Ukraine's done a pretty solid job here. The Nenets People's Republic also played the greatest hits of August around Kamyenka. They did a very similar strategy in November, and it ended in the same result. Not only were the advances unsuccessful, but they lost some territory north of Kamyenka. It's unclear if Ukraine, just like back in early September, is going to be able to hold these incremental gains, but Ukraine took advantage of the tactics. And the last part, destroy troop concentrations, command and control sites, interdict supplies, disrupt logistics. Uh, Ukraine continues to do a excellent job with this. They are writing the book on how to use uh, HIMARS for these roles. And I firmly believe that the United States Department of Defense is looking at some of the tactics that are now being deployed by Ukraine and going, huh, All right, we're learning things, and uh, we need to add these to our manuals. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. All right, moving along, Northeast Donetsk, the Russian objective, integrate Oblast into Russian Federation, defend against Ukrainian advances towards Luhansk, capture Bakhmut Solidar, Ukrainian objective, defend Bakhmut Solidar, push into Luhansk Oblast, and minimize civilian casualties. We've already covered a lot of the Russian objectives. Russia gets a D here. Uh, Defend against Ukrainian advances towards Luhansk, Russia has done a great job at this. They haven't done a terrible job. They haven't done a great job. Capture Bakhmut and Solidar. Here we are at the end of November. And again, we have to draw the line at November 30th. So if we draw the line there, Russia really had not made any real progress and is suffering catastrophic losses to gain about 50 to 100 meters a day since May 12th. We did an analysis that based on that rate, if Russia were to continue to advance uh, west in this direction, they'll reach Kiev in 2041. This is not sustainable. 
the Ukrainian objectives, defend Bakhmut Solidar, push into Luhansk Oblast, and minimize civilian casualties. Uh, Ukraine gets a straight-up A here. They have done a tremendous job. They are at an artillery disadvantage up to 9 to 1 in Bakhmut Solidar. They are in a staffing disadvantage in Bakhmut Solidar. They are in a situation where they are just under constant ground attack, constant artillery attack. And we saw as we move towards the end of November uh, an increase in Russian aviation and Russian aviation forces taking some more chances. And despite all of this, we basically have this one kilometer to two kilometer no man's land on an axis that just is moving back and forth within this range. Uh, there's been no real progress towards Soledar. There's been incremental progress towards Bakhmut that was lost and then regained and lost again. Again, November 30 is the line. I know some of you are going, but that's not true. They bit it. That was December. We're drawing the line November 30th. Uh, push into the Luhansk Oblast from Donetsk. Ukraine did a very good job of this, particularly if we look in the far northeastern region of this Oblast uh, and minimize civilian casualties. Now, part of that minimizing civilian casualties is because in August, the Ukrainian government issued mandatory evacuations in Donetsk. And for people that were, nope, I'm not leaving, they made them sign a waiver that said, all right, you are responsible for your own personal safety if you refuse to leave. And for some of you who may be listening to this going, well, that's just terrible. I, I could tell you as somebody who did search and rescue for eight years, they do this in the United States. If there is a wildfire coming and they declare a level three evacuation, which is it's time to go now, and they're knocking door to door and saying, hi, how you doing? Uh, level three evacuation, you need to go now. No, 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 not tomorrow, not now. And people are like, I am not leaving. I am going to defend my property. Uh, they have people sometimes in some jurisdictions sign these waivers. All right, you're on your own. But understand that if you change your mind or you call 911, nobody's going to come to help you. And that's what Ukraine did. And so in a lot of these towns, villages, cities, 75, 80, 90% of the population left. Who stayed? The elderly, the disabled, the poor, uh, and the Russian true believers that think they are waiting for liberation. From a military standpoint, the continued battle for Bakhmut and Solidar makes no sense. We've been saying this since September when Izum fell. There is no northern part of the pincer anymore to capture the rest of the Donetsk Oblast. There is no easy way to get to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk anymore. Capturing Bakhmut doesn't change that situation. We do believe that it is very important for Ukraine to hold on to Bakhmut coming into the month of December. And the reason that we believe that is Russian troops don't have as much infrastructure that is close to the front line where they can get dry, they can get warm, they can get out of a trench and get away from the artillery. Bakhmut and Solidar would give them that. And conversely, 
Ukraine would have to go much further back into the second echelon to be able to rotate troops into better conditions during the winter months. We believe it's very critical for Ukraine to hold on to Bakhmut and Solodar through the month of December. If they can do that, the situation for Russian forces in particular is going to get a lot worse because not only now are they fighting Ukrainian artillery and Ukrainian infantry and Ukrainian armor, but they are fighting the winter and they are fighting it in a location where they don't have very close to that first echelon places to go to not freeze to death. All right, the next access is Luhansk. The Russian objective, integrate the Oblast into the Russian Federation, hold current defensive lines, and control the insurgency. The Ukrainian objectives, break Russian defensive lines, advance on Svatova, Kremina, Lyshansk, and support insurgency. How did Russia do here? Russia gets a C minus. Integrate Oblast into the Russian Federation. Same thing as in Donetsk is happening, the Luhansk People's Republic. Uh, you can still spend in Ukrainian currency. They, in the month of November, had not removed the border checkpoints between Luhansk and Russia. We get into this whole weird thing of, well, you annexed back in the beginning of October. We're now to the end of November, but you're still enforcing the Russian border, but Luhansk is Russia, but it isn't, but it is. What's going on here, guys? The next part of this was uh, holding the current defensive lines. It's a mixed bag. All through November, Ukraine has been advancing along this entire axis. And in some areas, Ukraine's made some significant advances, and I'll get into that in a minute. And in other areas, it has become a little bit more of attritional warfare, unlike Bakhmut and Solidar, where you could argue private military company uh, Wagner Group, uh, supported by uh, Russian forces, Luhansk People's Republic Second Army Corps, and Donetsk People's Republic First Army Corps, uh, have made very limited progress. Ukraine is moving at a faster pace along this axis. And once again, we're in this little bit of a weird situation of we have to draw the line on November 30th because there's been a fair amount that has happened, particularly in the last 48 hours around Kremina, but that does not make the November report card. At the end of November, Ukrainian officials claim that they have liberated 12 settlements in Luhansk, we have coded nine settlements as liberated. However, Ukraine established a policy over the summer where they won't announce that a settlement or town has been liberated until it is under full control, not just in the military sense of the word, but in the administrative sense of the word. And there is a difference. We've talked about this before. We've written about this in the situation reports. And it's probably worth bringing up again. Military control means your troops are in the town. They are not engaged in active combat. There may be some stragglers left behind. There may be snipers, maybe a couple little house-to-house -house things going on. But overall, the town has been cleared. 
it may still be getting heavily shelled and hit with mortars and dealing with airstrikes. Civilians aren't going to tolerate being that in environment. But that is the definition of military control. When we say administrative control, that means that civilians can be in that town. That does not mean that artillery may not fall on that town or mortars or airstrikes or a missile, uh, but it doesn't mean that you have to live in a basement 24-7 and there is active fighting or active fighting right on the edge of that town. And I think a lot of people, when they hear the words, oh, we've taken control, Russia information space does a lot of this. Uh, We have taken control of X town and people change their maps, draw the lines, start dooming, when the reality is they've only established military control, not administrative control. And in a lot of these cases, Russia gets pushed out. And we saw this in November. The Russian Ministry of Defense made numerous claims of, oh, you know, we have advanced west, uh, back out of Luhansk into the uh, far eastern edges of Donetsk. And none of this panned out. It isn't necessarily that the Russian Ministry of Defense was just outright lying. It gets into this definition of control and people just writing things off because they're not looking at this nuance in how somebody who is a civilian defines it versus how somebody in the military defines it because it's very different. You may be wondering up to this point going, wait a minute, you didn't give December objectives for Donetsk. You just breeze right past that. No, there was a method to the madness. There is no change for Southwest Donetsk, Northeast Donetsk, or Luhansk for the objectives for either belligerent. Because not a whole lot moved in the month of November on these axes. So, no change. All right, the last axis is Kharkiv. Russian objective, lock military resources in place, launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services, and break morale. Ukrainian objective, liberate all of Kharkiv Oblast, sever ground lines and communication supply lines into Luhansk, protect civilian lives, and defend the Ukrainian border. Russia gets a C- minus here. We've already talked about how the Russian strategy of breaking civilian will is not working. There's no need to rehash that again. That applies here. Locking military resources in place. Russia's done that to some degree. There is a high amount of paranoia in the Russian sphere about Ukrainian troop buildups in Kharkiv, in the northeastern region, that they believe that this is an invasion force to the point that the governors and mayors of the border oblasts in Russia uh, have become so frustrated at these rumors that they are openly saying, these are rumors, they're, they're not true, and you're causing undue panic by continuing to repeat these claims. Please stop. It's very interesting dynamics that are going on there. I would argue that the manipulation that's going on in the information space is doing a better job of locking Russian military assets on this border than it is Ukrainian military assets. We don't believe for one second that Ukraine is planning 
any kind of invasion into Russia. That is preposterous. We do think that this troop buildup uh, is more about making sure that Russia doesn't go, you know, let's try to take a little bit of land back and let's try to get back into artillery range of Kharkiv, the city. Uh, And we also think that this is building up uh, to liberate this 1.3% of the Kharkiv Oblast that Russia is still holding on to. Most of that area is under Ukrainian fire control. Russia appears to be defending this little sliver uh, of Kharkiv uh, very strongly. And the reason for that is they are protecting ground lines of communication that go into Luhansk. And I think there is some concern because there is a significant uh, transportation supply node that would be brought within range of Ukrainian conventional artillery and MLRS systems uh, if Ukraine were to take this last little quarter of about 24 towns and settlements uh, away from Russia. And Ukraine made a little bit of progress here. Uh, We started with 32 uh, towns. At the end of November, it was 25. I know I said 24, but we have to draw the line. When we look at the ground lines of communication that Russia is using that are coming from Kharkiv, uh, Ukraine hasn't severed these lines. They're doing interdiction, but they haven't severed them. And so in this respect, Ukraine gets a C-plus in this area. This is another region where when we look at November to December, the goals don't change because the map and the battlefield didn't change and Russian strategy didn't change. Uh, We firmly believe that Russia will continue to target Ukraine's energy infrastructure until it is completely destroyed. I have some closing thoughts before we go ahead and wrap this up. And I want to say, these are my thoughts as the chief content officer. They do not necessarily represent uh, the conclusions of the analyst team. And there was some vigorous debate uh, about this over the weekend. There was a story yesterday, I know we're talking about December now, that uh, Russia is using ammunition at an unsustainable rate, which is why they are scrounging for ammunition from Belarus, North Korea, and looking to purchase from Iran. Hey, breaking news, Ukraine is consuming NATO-provided and former Soviet bloc nations uh, munitions. And I know Eastern Europeans don't like the term former Soviet bloc because they go, our identity is not tied to the fact that we were part of the Soviet bloc. I'm making the distinction because the former Warsaw Pact nations, the former Soviet bloc nations, have either leftover munitions from the Soviet era or continue to produce them, and they are supplying those to Ukraine because a lot of Ukraine's defense systems are based on former Soviet and Russian Federation technology. So that's why I make that caveat. The rate of consumption is also unsustainable. There's a reason for that. For Russia, this is part of their military doctrine. And we're seeing more and more in the Russian mill blogger space uh, 
coming from, say, PMC Wagner. Uh, admittedly, Wagner has its own agenda. We've covered a lot of that in our situation reports and in earlier podcasts. Wagner's looking for any way to zing the Kremlin. Uh, they have it out for Sergei Shogu. There is a agenda that goes beyond, hey, we're not doing things right. However, a lot of things in the PMC Wagner channels, social media channels, that they're call out going, hey, we're not doing this right, they are 100% correct. Russia's military is still trapped in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and a lot of Russian mill bloggers are starting to realize that. And a big part of their doctrine continues to be artillery-based. NATO, on the other hand, of course, has moved into the 21st century, uh, is far more reliant in their strategy on technology, standoff weapons, missiles, and airstrikes. And while the United States, before 2022, had mountains of 155-millimeter ammunition, production level and military planning did not dictate that it needed to match what the Russian Federation had because the Pentagon didn't believe that they would ever again be in an attritional war that is fought looking more like World War I, if we think of Bakhmut and Solidar, than looking like World War III. And I'm not saying we're in World War III. It's an analogy. The problem is NATO and the West is not equipping Ukraine to fight a full-on NATO-style war. Whatever the Russian Federation may be saying about, we're already fighting all of NATO and there's thousands of mercenaries and NATO troops in disguise that are here. They always say that when they're losing. Whenever they lose, it was, we would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those NATO troops. It's very fascinating that they play that card. Because what would NATO do? Well, NATO would use standoff weapons and airstrikes and would demolish Russians' ground line communications, supply lines, air bases, missile launching capabilities, air defense capabilities, the end. I am not advocating for NATO to get into a direct confrontation with Russia. I am not advocating for military strikes deep within the Russian Federation. What I am advocating for, we are approaching 11 months of war. And for 10 of those 11 months, when it comes to the issue of providing Ukraine with fourth-generation fighter aircraft or better main battle tanks, the excuses come in two flavors. Excuse number one, we don't want to make Putin mad. He, he's got nukes, don't want to make him mad. And excuse number two, these weapon systems are very complicated. It could take up to a year to train Ukraine on how to use them and set up logistics and supply and maintenance and spare parts. We're at 11 months. If we had started this nine months ago, the year excuse goes away at the beginning of 2023. So that excuse is just shot full of holes at this point. It's not an excuse. It's a willful decision. When it comes to, we don't want to make Putin mad. <laughs> he might do some bad things if we make Putin mad. Putin's already mad. 
And at the beginning of November, we learned how Russia will behave and respond when faced with an impossible situation. October 29, Ukraine launches a drone strike on the port at Sevastopol. Uh, Depending on which sources you use, uh, between one to four vessels were damaged, one of them heavily, a minesweeper. In our assessment, we believe there are three vessels. Uh, That's what we've concluded based on the social intelligence that was available, and we shared this in our situation reports. Um, And we do believe uh, that the Admiral Makarov suffered more damage than the Russian Federation cares to admit at this point. And there's a lot of signs that point to that. And there's other groups that have done analysis on this. What was Russian's response? We're leaving the grain initiative. And what was Ukraine's response in Turkey and the United Nations response? Hey, watch us sail 14 ships out of Odessa. What do you mean you're leaving the grain initiative? And everyone held their breath because it's like, well, what's Russia going to do? Are they going to blockade? Are they going to shoot at a civilian vessel carrying grain that is being escorted by the Turkish Navy that's under the protection of the Turkish Navy, not necessarily escorted by them? But that was part of the Grain Corridor Initiative's agreements. No, they blinked. They didn't do anything. And then they sailed the next day, a smaller group, about four ships out. And at that point, Russia, they had played their card. They were like, okay. We're back in the grain initiative, but we want security guarantees. We, we want promises that there, there won't be attacks launched against us at our ports, uh, you know, from the area of the grain, which again, just ridiculous because there's no evidence that Ukraine launched these uh, unmanned surface vessels from a civilian cargo ship in the grain corridor at the time of the attacks. There were no civilian cargo ships in the Grain Corridor. And we know that from more than just transponder data, because there's satellite imagery that you can look at and you can see where ships are located. Now, Russia launched a wide-scale punitive attack on civilians and civilian infrastructure, because when it comes to the Russian military, They have demonstrated for almost 11 months now they will fight very bravely against transformer farms, substations, civilians, power plants, hospitals, and schools. Maybe not so much when they're actually fighting actual armed and trained troops. But we don't want to make Putin mad. If we want Ukraine to be successful, then the United States and NATO countries need to make a decision. And they can't keep punting this decision to, eh, let's talk about this in a few months. Choice number one, the United States needs to use the Defense Production Act or the Lend-Lease Act to dramatically increase the production of ammunition. Dramatically. Not only in the support of Ukraine, but we have to take in consideration Part of United States military doctrine is fighting two wars at the same time. Now, the United States isn't fighting a war, but we are consuming ammunition as if we are fighting in a war. This requires increasing defense production. 
These are United States jobs for United States workers and their manufacturing jobs. For those who are going, I don't want my money going to Ukraine. And if you're worried about the price tag as an American taxpayer, let's consider this. According to the United States Department of Defense, in direct military aid, about $20 billion has been given to Ukraine since January 20th, 2021. Most of that since February 24th, 2022. That represents three fiscal years because 2021 is a fiscal year that ended on September 30th. Then we entered the 2022 fiscal year. And then on October 1st of 2022, the United States entered the 2023 fiscal year. The military budget over those three fiscal years for the entire United States military was around $2.4 trillion. $20 billion is couch cushion money when we are talking about an entire budget over three fiscal years, because that's the way you should be looking at this, because it is covered three fiscal years. This is couch cushion money. This is beyond a bargain. But we're paying with a tiniest little fraction of the United States' military budget. Ukraine is paying in tears and blood and frustration and horror. So we either have to equip Ukraine to fight this attritional war to be successful, or we have to equip Ukraine to fight NATO doctrine if we don't want to intervene. And that means main battle tanks, that means ground attack aircraft, that means fighter aircraft, F-15, Strike Eagles, F-16s, A-10s, possibly F-18s. If we had started this initiative on main battle tanks and aircraft six, eight months ago, we would almost be at the finish line. We would be about ready to equip Ukraine with these vitally needed weapons and systems. But we don't want to make Putin angry. I could already hear the keyboards clicking away going, the A-10 is crap. Two comments on that. First of all, the A-10 was literally designed. Its whole reason it was built was to fight a land war in Europe to shoot up Russian tanks. This is what the A-10 was built for. Ooh, I had a lot to say today. I just looked at how long this podcast is. And so with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed this, if you found this valuable, please consider becoming a patron for as little as $5 a month. You can help support our analyst team, Linnea, uh, our journalists, and keep the lights turned on. Little housekeeping as a reminder for the month of December, there are several days we won't be doing podcasts because we're coming into the holiday season. And I thank you for your understanding. Everybody does deserve some time off with their family. And as I like to always say at the end of these podcasts, please be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, 
please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.